Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. Yes, I am actually back, though I don't uh, mentally feel like I'm really back yet. But anyway, uh, we will soldier on this morning and I'm delighted to be back in the studio. Uh, and a huge thank you to AB who filled in for me while I was away. So um, AB, if you're listening, you're probably having a good sleep in. Thanks very much. Um, well, in the studio this morning, I'm joined by, uh, firstly, Evan Golke from Oka Landscape. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Boy, oh boy, I didn't expect this weather when I came back. <laughs> so where did you go? Europe? Yes, Europe. yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so it was toasty over there. <laughs> it was lovely and, over and, there. And, uh, well, I couldn't see my nose when I left our place this morning, so I imagine people are turning on their radio in bed, which is probably a damn good idea. Well, the only good thing about the fog this morning is we didn't have a heavy frost <clears> because two days ago my windscreen was totally iced up and it was... Um, it was not degrees when I looked at the car temperature outside air, so <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, and what was it in Europe? It was um, 20, 25 degrees yeah, and, and, and just beautiful. Mid-20s, yes. <laughs> Apart from the odd thunderstorm and then torrential rain, which we tended to always be caught in the middle of, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that all was all over in an hour, you know, and yes. then back to the sunshine. So, yes. yeah, really well, you're good. lucky anyone was here at all last week because I was listening to the podcast yesterday from the last couple of weeks and, and two weeks ago um, AB said, well, this is my last week, Pam, will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> and then I listened to it the next the next podcast, he says, "Oh no, I saw that. I saw on Facebook that Pam was still away, so I guess I'm here again today." <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness you worked that out. <laughs> okay, I also have to say very good morning to Virginia. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Pam. While you were away, it yes. actually snowed on Donna Buang. Oh, are you joking? I can't remember the last time that happened in May. Good heavens! I know, extraordinary. Yes. The weather is so mad. And I had frost two days ago. Right. And as you know. Which you never normally no, get. No. And, I mean, it still rolled down the hill and didn't affect my plants. Okay. Oh, you I were was lucky. surprised to get frost. Yes. Wow. But snow on, in May on Donna. Not this is getting usual. crazy, isn't mm. it? Oh, well. But at least the gardens look as though they've been watered. Yes, well, there was a terrible thing on the radio on 774 the other day saying that the rest of winter was going to be really dry. Which I, mm. and I, That's oh. the prediction, yeah. And the, I've been digging, you know, I've been planting, <laughs> yep. and you don't go down very far and my soil is still and dry. And it's still dry. Mm. And I'm not talking about under the trees. Of no. Of course it is under trees. But yeah, yeah. Just ordinary soil. Okay. So oh, well. we need more rain. Well, we certainly do then. Yep. But my, oh, my garden's looking wonderful. It's really enjoying itself at the moment. But your garden's always really good at this time of the year. Yes, yes. The only time it's really bad is it's high summer. Yes, yeah. yep. Okay. We also have to say a very good morning to Matthew Daniel. And Matthew's from uh, Global Urban Forest. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. Great to have you join us this morning. And we're going to find out all about um, herbal, Global Urban Forest um, during the program. I'm looking forward to it. Not a problem. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to get straight into community announcements. Um, there isn't much happening, of course. I guess that's partly weather-wise, but uh, there still are a couple of things that I need to talk to you about. And, Virginia, before I start on these, um, I presume you're still having some walks in at the Botanic Gardens? Yes, every day there's a walk, morning and afternoon, half past ten and two o'clock, and I'm doing next Saturday, if anyone's around. Okay, what time? I'm not sure. I'll just quickly You better check on that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's morning, which is half past ten. Oh, okay. But um, how are the gardens looking? The gardens are looking, yes, next Saturday morning I'm doing a walk. Okay. The gardens are looking absolutely fabulous at the moment because there's been that little bit of rain and there's been quite a lot of sun, so you get that nice combination. Although it's been very cold, particularly mm. at nights, it's been warm. I mean, yesterday I was in the gar- my garden all day yesterday, and by the end of the day I was down to a T-shirt. You okay. Know, yep. Starting off with about so, so many layers, I could yep. barely move, and they just gradually came off all day. And, of course, that means things are growing well. Mm. And my colleague and I were in Sydney this week, and uh, we hadn't been to the Botanic Gardens for a long time in Sydney and went and had a look. And yeah, I tell you what, Melbourne leaves them for dead. <laughs> they really do leave them for dead. I hadn't been there for a long time because you, you don't. There's no great reason to go there, to no. be honest. But Claire hadn't really been there uh, for probably for 15 years. And okay. So we thought we'll go and have a look. And no joke, in the end we were running through to get to the other end because <laughs> oh, it's just it, just the level of horticulture isn't as good. But yeah. I also think fundamentally it's about the design. Guilfoyle's design, yes. has, which has been held to since the 1860s and 70s, mm. Guilfoyle's design is so excellent that the gardens, it, it's one of the reason the gardens is one of the best in the world. And I, I mean, I, I think Sydney's improved. I remember when I used to live in Sydney, you'd go to the cafe and, and you know, you'd sit upstairs in the cafe and you'd look out and you'd look at bamboo. And when they eventually took the bamboo down, mm. you could see the harbour. Mm. Now, where is the logic of having bamboo blocking a harbour <laughs> view? <laughs> but the thing we found that it, it, it did seem a little bit like a collection garden. I mean, which is what obviously botanical gardens have that purpose. But the, for example, the succulent area was very much just a collection. Yes, it, it had no, as you say, no design to it. Mm. Uh, no interest really, and mm. in fact, a lot of the plants looked quite poorly. Mm. You know? And you compare that with the what is it called, the Guilfoyle volcano, yeah. which is know, absolutely beautiful, and the, the diversity of plants, mm. and just the level of horticulture and how well they're looked after and how well they're growing. And again, the design and the design, the design. It's, yes, you know, it's beautifully designed. Mm. And although it is largely succulents and things for dry, uh, arid gardens. You know, there's the ceiba, that beautiful um, K-pop tree from South America. And, you know, at the, mo- at the moment it's just finishing flowering and it has these vibrant pink flowers on mm. top of these trunks that are full of thorns. I mean, it's such an interesting plant. and So that there, you don't have that sense of just being amongst a whole lot of succulents. Mm which I think is really important. That's, mm. that's true. Mm. Yeah, very true. And all the Botanic Gardens um, have just had an open day. Did Melbourne do anything for the open day? This year they didn't. They did down in Cranbourne. Right. Last year they did, and they didn't down in Cranbourne. So I don't know if this is going to be what they do. but um, they, Maybe they'll alternate. I, I think they might be alternating, yep. yes. But I, I mean, there were some things happening, and, of course, we had our walks. Yes. Um, and they had a specialist walk, which was... Um, a tree walk. Okay. 
Uh, and there are more specialist walks coming on where people, um, they're paid walks like the Aboriginal walk. Yes. And the Aboriginal um, walk, which is a paid walk that happens every day, that's really taking off and it's a oh, fantastic, good. fantastic mm. walk. It's mm. a really inspiring, exciting thing to do. Mm. Mm. So, you know, there's things happening in our gardens that are good and, you know, there's lots of things in flower always. Like uh, there's a lot of salvias in the garden and they're all in flower. The madarents, which is... Oh, you know, 12 foot high with yellow flowers everywhere. It's looking fabulous. Great. You know, so it's good. It's an exciting gardens. And I noticed that the bulbs are coming up. There's lots of daffodils in the gardens now. And they're okay. just starting to come up. Okay. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And I really have that sense where when I take a walk, nearly always I say, now that'll, this is wonderful, but that'll be out in a month. So come back in a month, which is no good when somebody's from South America. No, that doesn't help. <laughs> But I had my last walk. I had three people from South America. Right. We had such fun. I just decided to go around and find South American plants in flower, and they loved it. Okay. You know, because there's so many. Okay. Absolutely. There's mm. squillions of them. Do you yeah. notice that some plants are a bit confused that they're flowering early? I was in Tasmania uh, a couple of weeks ago, and my mu- my mum down there, she's got um, the chickens are having chickens. And she's got flowering plants that should be flowering in spring, flowering just before winter. In really? my garden. It's crazy, in Tassie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, in my garden I've got things coming out that... Uh, and I've got an open garden in October and I'm saying to them, please don't, don't come out <laughs> so early. <laughs> don't exhaust yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Was it because it was so dry leading up, um, leading up to... And to some warm days. And, and warm yeah. days, yeah. Yeah, above average temperatures. Mm. Yeah. And I the same in Tassie. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, I mean, that's the thing with... with the global change in climate, isn't it? We get the extremes, and we've had really cold nights, snow in the middle of May, mm. you know, quite mm. low down, yes. and yet freezing cold nights. Mm. I love the freezing cold nights, so it kills the bugs. I know, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> the more of them, well, not the more of them, the better. I don't want to be kind to them. But, um, <laughs> you know, it is really nice to have those cold days. It mm. just kills, I know, and kills it's, a lot well, of, of course, and this is one of the big fears with global warming that all the mosquitoes are going to move south. Mm. Mm. Well, I have to say that uh, that one of the one of the recurring themes that we heard um, in 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 France, particularly in Provence, was again they're talking global warming because, I mean, I I went over there with the expectation that it was going to be warm, it was going to be fairly dry. Um, well, they just before I arrived there, they had snow in Provence, um, which wow. is. Unprecedented. They haven't had that happen in, you know, decades. So, uh, you know, global warming is, is everywhere and people are talking about it. And it's about extremes. It is about yeah, extremes. definitely. Yeah. I was in New York a couple of, in, in October two years ago and they, had, they broke a record. I think it was 38 degrees in autumn mm. in the city. Mm. It was unreal. I, we got there, you know, ready for, you know, the cold... New York temperatures, and I was getting around with shorts and t-shirt on. Yes. That would have been stifling as well. Yeah, it is. New York's yeah. horrible. Yeah. The heat well, the, the urban heat island effect—you really oh, notice it—the radiant is. heat coming off the footpaths and the buildings and more trees. We need more, more trees. trees. More trees. And, and soil health is crucial. Mm. You know, I'm just listening to you guys talk, and, and at everything, it keeps coming back to soil health. If you don't have soil health, mm. then you're, you know you're, you're, the plants are susceptible to these extremes. Uh, you know, the plants are susceptible and then you get the, you know, cycles of bugs and, you know, the plants just can't get over these dips and troughs of, you know, dry, wet, dry, wet. 
So, yeah, mm. I'll bang on a lot about soil health. Okay, yeah. you certainly will. <laughs> We're going to touch that very soon. Um, Virginia, I've got a lead-in, thank you, to you, and talking about the, uh, the Botanic Gardens because um, down at Geelong Botanic Gardens, they do have a themed guided walk coming up. Um, this is entitled Spices, Tastes and Flavours, um, and it's uh, coming up next Sunday, uh, 10th of June, uh, 2 o'clock, you meet your guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens, um, gold coin donation for entry, and they're going to be looking at um, plants that uh, provide uh, either staple grains and pulses. Other plants uh, have been cultivated uh, to make those staples more interesting and attractive. So they're looking at using plants to improve our eating experience um, and on the walk, uh, they'll be particularly looking at plants with a history of culinary value in the kitchens of the rich and the poor. So that's uh, happening Sunday, 10th of June, 2 o'clock. Meet your guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens. Now, also coming up um, June 16th, um, Royal Horticultural Society Victoria have got a big Gardener's Day out. Uh, now, this is an annual event that they put on each year, and it's the event, it's an all-day event. It's taking place at Deakin University campus. Uh, they're out in Burwood, uh, and it will be a wonderful day out for gardeners where you will experience three great presentations from gardening celebrities, Jane Edmondson, Stephen Ryan, and Attila Capitani. Uh, and uh, it'll also be supported by a large number of varied plant stalls and traders. So uh, the day is uh, to help the Royal celebrate its 170th birthday year, and if you'd like more information on that one, you can contact their secretary. Her number is 53676363. That's 53676363. Do we have a name for the phone number? Uh, no, we don't. All I know is it's the secretary. But I'm sure <laughs> if you get onto the phone, you'll get all the information you want. Um, now, the other thing, this is, this is definitely an advance notice, but it's something Virginia and I have both um, experienced, and it's a wonderful day out. Uh, Secret Gardens of the Dandenong Ranges. Now, uh, they've been uh, running this for the last um, few years, and it is a wonderful experience, isn't it, Virginia? Was it three years ago we went? Three, yeah, it would be, have to be about three years ago. Um, now, these are exclusive tours of some of Melbourne's finest private gardens. So they're gardens that um, very often aren't normally open to the public. Some of them are only quite small gardens. Some of them are magnificent estates. Um, and it's, it's a bus. Pri primarily you're in a little bus, so there's not too many at a time because the gardens can't allow too many in a group. And you visit some of these wonderful, wonderful gardens. Um, it normally includes, um, it includes lunch, morning tea, afternoon yes, tea from yes, memory. Yes, gardens in at this time? You're part of it. Yep. Well, there you go. Congratulations. There's, there's another, the winery at the end of my street. Oh, yes. Has, is spending vast six-figure numbers of dollars on its garden. Right. And it's going to be in, and they've asked me to be in as well, so there'll be two in the street. Okay. So now, I've, got to, I've got to tell those plants not to bloom too early. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, um, you can choose from a single-day tour or you can choose from all four days because it happens over four days. 
and um, each day they visit different gardens, so you're not going to see the same garden. So um, you need to probably go online um, to have a look at which gardens they're going to on each particular day to work out which, uh, which day or days you wish to book for. And bookings are already open because um, it's been so popular in uh, previous years that uh, you do need to get in early. So um, to book and to find out more about it, um, the address is Secret Gardens of the Dandenong Ranges, all one word, it's a long one, Secret Gardens of the Dandenong Ranges.com.au. Now, uh, and I say then you can, you can have a look at all the different gardens and book. The dates for it, it's in October, 17th to the 20th of October, plus 24th to the 27th. So 17th to the 20th and 24th to the 27th of October. But I do highly recommend it, particularly now that I know Virginia's got a garden open as well. There you go. And I've got no idea which week I'm in. I must look up, I must look up the that website. That might help. It's a secret. <laughs> it's a big secret. It won't be a secret afterwards. <laughs> Okay, um, the only other thing I really need to remind listeners about um, is a little notice that I'm about to play for you. Doesn't want to play, so there you go. Okay, we'll have to sort that out, but I'll tell you about it anyway. Um, because uh, coming up at the end of this month is, of course, our major fundraiser for the year. We have our big 3CR gardening show, Radiothon Extravaganza. Now, uh, it's all happening Sunday 24th of this month, so um, another three weeks' time. And, of course, this is where um, we try to raise um, enough uh, funding for the station to cover our running costs for the year. Um, and, of course, as you can imagine, uh, just even household electricity bills have gone up. Well, um, mm. you can imagine the electricity bill of trying to run a radio station. Um, so we really do rely on our listeners to, uh, to support us. What we have is some fantastic um, uh, product. We've had uh, literally thousands of dollars worth of donated gardening product which we then sell to our listeners to raise funds for the station and everyone gets bargains because we sell it at uh, less than the retail price. Um, there's going to be all sorts of things. There's going to be seeds, tools, fertiliser, books, um, nursery vouchers, subscriptions, compost, um, you name it, we'll have that all here for Sunday the 24th of June. Now, we will be running an extended uh, program. We'll be uh, running from uh, 7.30 through till 10 o'clock, so two and a half hours on air. And then, of course, uh, we invite you to come in at 10 o'clock when we come off air to have a cup of tea, um, say hello and pick up your product um, if you haven't decided uh, what you want, you can come in and have a browse of what product we have, what books we have, etc., and then make a choice. But we do um, really urgently need your support this year. As I say, uh, running costs for the station have increased again this year, so uh, we've tried to keep uh, the uh, total amount that the gardening show have to raise 
uh, to um, the same for the last few years. I'm afraid we have to try and really beat that this year to uh, help support the station and, of course, to keep the gardening show on air for another 12 months. So uh, please do support us on the 24th. And, of course, you don't have to wait till the 24th. You can ring up the station and donate uh, any time from now on, and it will be... Um, it will be uh, uh, listed as being a support for the 3CR gardening show. So uh, please do support us uh, for the 24th for the running costs for 2018. And I think, Pam, as well, we have problems with the heating. So there's a problem that that has to be raised as well. And we... I mean, we cannot stay here with no heating or cooling. Over Absolutely the... <laughs> not. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Okay. Um, Matthew. Yes. <clears throat> please um, tell listeners, firstly, what is Global Urban Forest? So Global Urban Forest is a company dedicated to plant and soil healthcare in mm-hmm. urban environments. Um, and we have a really high focus on collecting measurables to understand the complexities of nature, basically. Um, I might start with just sort of explain how I got here. So uh, I started in arboriculture about 23 years ago and did the natural progression in arboriculture, ended up um, as a climbing arborist and found that arboriculture is quite a a reactive industry. So we we tend to sort of work in trees in urban environments. We really focus on them from a human risk, you know, know, how, how we perceive a risk and then we treat the tree based on that. Uh, so everything's reactive, you know. Mm. Cut a branch off it, cut some dead wood out of it, it has a disease, spray it, inject the soil or whatever. And I got a job overseas in Boston and realised very quickly that um, there's a much more holistic approach that you can take. And basically everything starts with the soil. So you plant a tree, it starts with the soil. And as a tree grows, you know, soil becomes even more more important. So... I learnt a lot about soil health and then realised that to manage trees, if we manage them and look at them from a holistic perspective, um, we can treat all sorts of things and we can increase the tree's you know, useful life expectancy. If the soil health, you know, if soil's healthy, the tree will be healthy, um, more likely to suppress disease and pests um, and it won't have as many issues mm, mm. like they do you know, around mm. the city. So... We, we test, you know, we go in and we measure the soil biology, the chemistry, we measure the physical structure, the soil moisture. Um, we do a lot of independent laboratory assessments for pathology and entomology. Um, and then we design programs and we address all those issues and then we retest. So we can, we can show um, what, you know, what we're doing, you know, what we're achieving from a scientific perspective. So we're very science-based. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, You raise um, one really interesting point, first of all. Um, People don't think about about their trees or think about um, bringing in an arborist, for instance, until Until they're scared of there's a problem. They think, you know, is the tree going to die? Am I going to lose these big branches I'm worried about? Yep. But they don't think about it till there's a problem. Yep. It's it's very reactive. Mm. Most of the trees that I work on that I have on my books are really sick trees. We've been able to save most... Most of the trees I work with are, you know, heritage-listed or significant trees for, for councils and things like that. Right. But we, we, work, we work in the private sector as well. Um, but we very rarely get a phone call from someone saying, we love this tree and we want to 
extend its its life. We want to do whatever we need to. And one of the biggest problems, and, and one of the probably one of the biggest reasons that I have so many significant trees on my books is development and it's happening more and more and more the, the encroachment around trees yes and and you see it all the time the architect comes in and says oh we want to keep the tree and make it a feature and they have a vision and that's great but the tree ends up becoming the afterthought the building you know the machinery the compaction levels yes, yes. the increasing compaction that we measure is incredible mm. um, and then you know the tree starts to decline quite quickly um, with soils, we, we've, we have a way of sort of um, explaining the complexity of how soil functions. So if you think about um, when you turn a fertiliser bag upside down, you have your critical analysis, your nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, NPK. A lot of far- farmers will know when you say NPK to them. Sure. But we describe it as nutrient, physical structure and key biology. And if you affect any one of those things in that triangle, you affect the whole system. So if you, if you add too much nutrient, you affect the biology, the key biology component. If you affect the key biology component, you affect the physical structure and, and so on. So if you, so it's a, it really needs to be a holistic sort of even triangle. If you, if you have any sort of impact on any component of that triangle, you affect the whole system. Mm. Yeah, development is a very interesting thing. I, I work a lot on, on commercial. Uh, jobs. Yes. A lot of them are for councils and so on. If you read the Australian standards for the arboricultural uh, 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 protection of trees on development sites, it's a two-stage process. The first stage is for a survey to be done by a surveyor, mark all the trees, then for the arboricultural consultant to come in and uh, assess those trees, work out the tree protection zones and and, uh, the structural root zones and all of those sorts of things, then that information should then end up in the architect's hands and then in consultation with the arborist should start working out their footprint for their building. Unfortunately, how it tends to happen is that the architects get the building, uh, get the site, they get a survey done so they know the levels and roughly where the trees are and surveyors never draw canopies the way they are. They're always much yeah. smaller. Yes. And they put their footprint down, and then they get an ARB report. Uh, uh, then they get an ARB report. And the ARB report is reactive yep. to the, the building going in. So it should be a two-stage process where the ARB report gets done immediately after the survey. Then using that ARB report, the building should be designed and the footprint should be designed. And then there's a management process done by the arboricultural consultant. So, but that very rarely but happens. Look, in fact, that management process essentially never happens uh, and the ARB report gets, is in the wrong section of the process. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, not, look, it's, it's not that difficult to figure out a TPZ. No, and, no. And you, sure, you really shouldn't need an arborist, <laughs> and I'll probably upset a lot of arborists out there if they're listening, you really don't need an arborist to tell you what you're... No, it's you, just a multiplication. Put, it's just a multiplication of the yep. diameter at breast height. So you That's can walk right. up to a tree really roughly and mm. work out what that diameter is mm. and then calculate that footprint. But it, and then, but the other thing is, is that's the foot. That's a. It's very one-dimensional. It's just looking at the radius. Um, you need to sort of start to think about the the type of tree, the size of the tree, the type of soil, mm. uh, the topography, yes. where how how water's moving through the landscape, and look at the depth. And that, the other thing that I have a big problem with, we're trying we're trying to really change the the industry with our 
our approach with, with measurables. The, the only measure that's taken in that scenario is the diameter at breast height. You know, the, yes. That's the only... So it's the trunk diameter. Yeah. So they look at the trunk diameter and then it's a multiplication... Uh, to provide a radius for how far out the protection but it's quite e- it's that's something that an architect can do mm. and another tool that all arborists should have in their toolbox is a penetrometer to measure the the compaction so if you know what you're you know if you measure the compact so basically a penetrometer is just a device that you push into the soil uh, and it's just at the, at the moment they're all fairly they're analog so they just it's a dial on there and you push the, the spike into the ground and it tells you the, the the psi of how much pressure you're pushing on the soil and then you figure out the depth that you've pushed it in so if you and this is i find it all the time in the urban environment it's around 600 psi at about five or ten centimeters now if you're thinking if you, and that's you know that's really high compaction at a really low depth which means the volume of soil that that tree has to really grow in is really poor and it also means that you end up with this crust over the soil so any sort of rain event that you get the soil the, you were talking about before that you know that you dig down a little you know deep and, and how dry it is if you measured your compaction you probably find that it's so high that that um and and if you don't have enough soil biology as well to keep that sort you know the when i when i wander through the gardens around the mcg and I think about all those cars parking around those trees. Yeah. I think this is just appalling. Yeah, How can you park all those cars around those trees and expect those trees to be healthy? Yeah. Yeah. And when I look at the botanic gardens, we've got a number of pre-white settlement trees. And what they've done is they've planted native grasses all around them so people don't walk on their root zones yep. so, so that the compaction isn't increased at all you, because you, these trees are so old. That's not a bad old. idea, but really they should, they should be mulched. They should be mulched so that you're replenishing the carbon back into the soil. You're, you're balancing out your soil biology, you know, what the tree wants. Because the tree, all plants will talk to the soil biology. They'll produce, they'll photosynthesize, they'll produce sugars, protein and carbohydrates and they'll dump those sugars out into the soil to communicate with the soil biology and to promote the microbes that that particular plant wants. When I started at my place, I planted quite a lot of trees and I had some trees already there and I really noticed they weren't growing well and since I have removed all the grass around them and replaced it with mulch, yep. all my trees are doing mm. better. Yeah. I, I'd so be, much better. I'd be astounded though if the MCG didn't regularly core that and, and you know, aerate the, the, the turf around those trees. I mean it's a pretty high level horticultural zone yeah i'd be pretty surprised if they didn't have some intervention i don't think they just drive cars on it and then forget about it but if we think about that triangle that nutrient physical structure and key biology your coring may be improving some of the physical component of the soil so the air and some of the water holding capacity but it's not doing anything for your key biology and um or your nutrient, because your, your nutrient is linked to your key biology. You, you, the microbes will unlock. Yes. And but they may be doing that as well, is what I'm saying. I mean, they, 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 their horticultural level might be higher than we, uh, we yes, think. Yes, we hope. It may be. Mm. You don't think well, so? <laughs> <laughs> Give them a go. I know, I, know the level, I know the levels in the industry, and we, need, we really need to Although, raise the bar in aboriculture. We, yes. But in aboriculture, you know, a lot of people don't realise, but it's... Uh, you know your visual tree assessment it's all based on human uh, it's ex- on experience isn't it yeah that's right and, and oh, you yeah. could, you could have two subjective. arborists walk up very subjective mm. two arborists walk up to a tree 
and both have the same level of qualification, but both have a very different idea on, wh- on what's happening. Mm. And that's the problem. If we, if we move into a more scientific realm where we measure things and not base everything you know, on a visual um, interpret, subjective interpretation based on your experience and your knowledge, mm. then it really you know, raises the bar on how we manage things. And it really it takes that um, myst- you know, mystical you know, thing about the environment because you can measure it. You, you know, it. We know what, you know, measure the compaction. We know what that is. Measure the, the, the chemistry and the soil biology and the, phys- you know, the, the, the moisture. I mean, we talk about moisture, but... Very rarely do we talk about the moisture level, you know, the measurable levels of, of moisture. Mm. Well, they do that at the Botanic Gardens a lot. Yeah, that's mm. good. It's but also, I think the other thing we must remember is that Melbourne City Council is taking trees... I, I'm not suggesting all the other councils are, but Melbourne City Council are taking trees very seriously and are very, very keen to make Melbourne an urban forest. Mm. And yeah. I think that's actually... A, a significant change and an important change. Yeah, I did notice. And I presume that they are in charge of the trees around the MCC. <laughs> Maybe. I did notice the other day uh, in the city they've done some tree planting and uh, between the tree holes, so from, well, some people call them tree graves, um, <laughs> between the tree holes, they've actually used uh, granite sets, you know, so small granite cobbles, and they're quite clearly on on uh, gravel. So, they, so, so, so the water gets through. So the water gets through. More importantly, I think, so you get that gaseous exchange. Yes. So you get the oxygen in it. I mean, it, it isn't just about the moisture getting through, is it? It's also no. about the, the oxygen because some trees, and this is why plane trees are you know, a very dominant city tree It's beca- you know, across the world, not just here. Um, it's because they tolerate very low oxygen soils. And tolerate high pollution in the... Yeah, in the air. Yeah, can, can and deal the soil. with that as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and the soil. So that, that's why you do see some trees more than you see others. That, that ability to withstand those those constraints. But we, we really need to look at trees from a holistic perspective. You've got to include the below ground component. You know, mm. we we most of the, and and we this is the whole thing with the visual tree assessment. The, the visual tree assessment doesn't really take into consideration anything below the ground. But when you look at a tree, just have a think about your favourite tree. Think about two-thirds of that mass, including the trunk, and try and figure out whether two-thirds of that mass that you're looking at above the ground is below the ground, because it should be. And very rarely, even when we plant young trees and you look at that species of trees that you're planting and you imagine how big that tree is going to grow... Think about whether it is going to be able to develop two-thirds of that above-ground mass below the ground. They never do. In urban environments, we just there's the balance isn't there, and you see it whenever we have a storm. Every single tree I look at when it falls over in a storm has this tiny little crappy root system, and I look at them and think, well, that's not good for the health and the longevity of that tree, but it's also a, it's, it's a risk, it, you know, that... Physics tells you that there's no way that that plant is going to be able to stay upright with a with a with a root system that size. I think another interesting thing too for for us is that we have got a huge number of European and American trees growing around and Asian trees, and in their own environments they live. You know, the oaks live to six hundred a thousand years. Yeah, and there's no evidence that they. Well, we have no evidence. Period. We haven't grown them here longer than two hundred years. 
but it doesn't look like they're going to have the same longevity here. Yeah, but I think that's because of this poor soil health. All of those trees that, you're, that I'm, I think that you're thinking about, if you went up and you measured the compaction and you measured the soil biology and the chemistry um, and the moisture, you would find that all those there were issues with all those things. That the, the problem is, is the management of those trees for a long period of time has reduced their useful life expectancy. Or is it that a lot of these trees, when they are in their original environment, they stop in winter? Yeah. And, none, and, and we don't have trees that stop in winter, so we're not getting the same ring development in our trees, for example. Yep. Because yep. they don't stop in winter. And does this mean that they actually are going to live lo- less time because they, they, they don't stop growing? So their, no, their, tree th- is less, their, their timber is less dense, isn't it? I, I it's think, definitely one yep. of the effects of, mm. is that trees that Von Mueller and people like that planted when they in the 1800s because they wanted good... Uh, good trees for the economy, the, the economy of the colony, and a lot of those trees aren't nearly as dense as they expected. And one, again, assumes it's because they don't stop growing in winter. Mm. If you think about it a bit more broadly and you think about the tree functioning, sun goes up in the morning, tree starts producing sugars, proteins and carbohydrates. Most of that energy that it's producing every day, it's dumping into the soil and on the leaf surface to communicate with the soil biology, all the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes. To, to get them to symbiotically work with them to, to gain out of the soil what they require to grow. So if they're able to get all the nutritional you know, requirements that they need every single day, every single year, all the moisture requirements that they need every single day, every single year, it's much more likely that that you know, organism will live longer. It, it will have, it's not continually struggling. Yes, we'll have those extremes, those, you know, those extreme temperatures, uh, that they may not have, although they do have in the in Northern Hemisphere. You know, Aussie, like well, I said, it was in New York on a, in October on a 38-degree day. Um, well, one of the things that our trees don't tend to have is the extremes of the cold that they had. Yeah, yeah. And also in the city environments, it's that constant light. You can, know, I, you can I... The, we've got two... Uh, the Monterey Cypress in the Botanic Gardens. One time there was a very big conference and I was asked to take a walk of some of the biologists. I just happened to have all Americans, so I took them to the Monterey Cypress and took them round the side where there wasn't identification, a name, and asked them to identify it, and none of them could. And the reason is it is four times larger than their tree, than the Monterey Cypress is ever in Monterey. Yep. It is it is over 100 foot high. It doesn't get anything like that in Monterey. I mean, this is the other effect here. Yep. Things grow much bigger than they grow in their native environments. Yep. And that must affect the longevity of the tree. I mean, we don't know because we haven't been here long enough. That's right. But we should ask questions and we should measure this stuff and prove it rather than sort of guessing about these things. I think, you know, all of our associated industries, landscape architecture, arboriculture, horticulture, uh, all the other science, you know, science-based areas, we should get together and, and measure these things and then take that whole, you know, discussion, I reckon, out of it and answer these questions because nature is inf- infinitely complex. Mm. I find, you know, I've been d- looking at trees for, for 23 years and I studied arboriculture and I've studied soil science and I've done a bit of horticulture um, and I've worked, for, I've worked in agriculture and worked for farmers that will pay you to measure these things and are really interested to find out what, what is changing. 
and you can intervene, you can change things for the better. Um, but the more that I measure and the more questions that I ask, I, rea- I realise that there's a lot more to it. You know, we, we, a lot of industries love to... To, to make things simple. You know, we love a silver bullet approach. What's the best soil I should... I, I don't know how many times I get asked, what's the best soil I should use, Matt? What's, what's the best compost I should use? Oh, I've got this problem. What chemical should I spray on the tree? And I always say to people, if you're really interested in horticulture, if you love your garden, learn. And once you, once you start to learn, you'll realise that you don't know. I feel, I have 23 years in, I don't really don't feel like I know that much because well, the more I learn, the, the more I realise I don't know. The first subject we did when we all did hort, the first subject we do is soil. It's the very first yep. subject that you, they ask you to do when you go and do hort. Yep, and you'll never stop learning. No. It, the, when, you learn, when you learn how to ask the right questions, especially with soil, mm-hmm. and, and, but it's, it, it, with lots of things, entomology, um, you never, you'll never stop learning. And with climate change, you will never stop learning because we will start seeing new bugs. So mm. how do you go about um, getting those base, that baseline data? Because obviously there's many species of trees. Yep. There's exactly many what different I was going to soil ask. types. So yeah. is your baseline line yeah. data variable depending on the species of yeah. tree, for and instance? Definitely. And where it's growing. Yes. So, for example, yeah. out at Melton, where we do seem to do a lot of work, we've got three projects on there at the moment, um, they actually have a rainfall deficit. Mm-hmm. So they get more evaporation than they get rainfall. So I was told yesterday. I don't know how true that is, um, well, and I don't know how sustainable that is. Yeah, how if that you look actually at Melton works. Melton Botanic Gardens. You know, that's what they've been planting. Yes, you know, mallees. Oh, it's fantastic! Isn't it the most beautiful oh, yeah, botanic garden? We had a t- Claire and I had a tour around there uh, about three weeks ago with uh, one of the volunteers, and it was fascinating. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Mind you, they'd had a big dump of rain the week before. And so some beds, they have an interesting issue out at Melton. If they get a lot of rain, the soils become very boggy mm-hmm. and, you know, the oxygen depletion is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the summer, you can stick your hand down a crack. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly dry. So they, they have a really difficult balance mm-hmm. out there. And I had a little bit of a dig around some of the beds that weren't doing very well. And, oh, they were so heavy. Mm. Heavy, heavy ground. You know, you get that bit of an off smell when when things are a little bit anaerobic. anaerobic yep. And uh, so they they had that going on in there, but um, they they have a real challenge. But they have done unbelievably well. That place looks fantastic. Mm, yes. um, there was a lemon eye there, a eucalyptus lemon eye, like I've never seen before. I don't know if you know. They normally have these massive nuts, like the mm. same size of your the palm of your hand. These ones are really small. And, and hung really nicely. Absolutely beautiful, what a yes. tree that was. Yeah. Before we continue this discussion, it is high time we invited our <laughs> listeners to join us in on the discussion. Um, if you'd like to, uh, to make comment or to ask a question, uh, particularly while we have Matthew Daniel in the studio, um, do give us a call. Or if you have a normal gardening question, of course, we will take that as well. But uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, the number... If you'd like to speak to the team on air, we have Evan, Virginia and Matthew in the studio. The number is 94190155 or we have Doug on the outside line this morning. If you'd like to have a chat to Doug, 
8377. So uh, do feel free to uh, to join in on, on what we're um, having a chat about because uh, we'd love to, to hear um, your thoughts on the subject or, as I say, on any other gardening question. Those numbers again, 94190155 to speak to the team on air or to have a chat to Doug on the outside line, 94198377. The whole concept of... Um, of scientifically measuring these things I think is fascinating because mm. nobody has really qualified this uh, before. And the other thing is that for years on this show we've preached um, soil health but we tend to think about our garden beds. Mm. We don't tend to think about <clears throat> our gardens where we've bought a garden and we already have very large established trees. We think all about the beds we're trying to create and we're trying to plant into, mm. but we don't think about established trees. So, of course, it's easy if you're creating a new garden bed to think about your soil health and, and you turn it over properly. You, you know, you add whatever's needed if you need more compost, if you need, you know, leaf litter, whatever, whatever. But we don't think about, about where the established trees are standing, maybe in the, the root, middle the of root, the lawn. Root-to-shoot ratio. Exactly. We mm. just don't take that mm. into account mm. unless, as I say, we think suddenly there's a problem and, oh, that yeah. big tree <clears> looks <throat> like it's going to die. So, um, yeah. We have, to start, we have to we start have to. acknowledging that root-to-shoot ratio because we were just talking before about urban forestry, especially in Melbourne. The whole point... With, with Melbourne, with their urban forest strategies, is very much a functional perspective. So the whole idea is, is to, gr to grow the canopy to reduce the urban heat island effect by 4 degrees by 2040. So they have a very clear mm. objective. The, what they're doing there is not about aesthetics at all. Mm. It's very much a functional perspective. So if you're, if you're looking at trees from that functional perspective, you have to acknowledge the tree holistically and you have to start really thinking about the root-to-shoot ratio because a tree, you know, a tree is only as healthy as the soil it's growing in mm. and it's really only as healthy as its, its root-to-shoot ratio. If it doesn't have that balance and that ratio, it's never going to be able to get mm. the amount of nutrients well, or that, water that, that, that it requires. That brings me to a couple of, of, of more practical questions. If you've already got established trees in your garden, and I'm, I'm talking about just a, you know, a suburban garden but with a few uh, established trees, it's very easy to change or improve um, your soil health in, in, in your, um, you know, your annual garden beds or whatever, but you can't just start digging around the roots of your established trees. How on earth do you firstly check the soil biology and then change it or alter it or improve it? Well, the first thing you really... Got, you've got to think about that, that ratio, that root-to-shoot ratio, and the easiest way to do that is just to sort of look at the diameter of the tree at breast height and, and figure out, you know, how, how far your roots go out. And, and you could do that quite simply, just looking, taking a step back and, and looking at the drip line. So where, where's your, your edge of your canopy? Um, and that's a, that's a great start. Just just look at your tree and look at your drip line, um, and and then you've got an area to work with. So everywhere inside that drip line is going to be you know your your root mass area. Then, with, with, especially with trees, especially with deciduous trees, they're shedding organisms. So they're they're growing every year, and they're you know they're dropping their leaves. Um, they're they're pulling in all the nutrient that they want before they drop their leaves. And then they drop the leaves and they're replenishing carbon back to the soil. And they, they'll, in, in a forest, forest environment, they're also dropping dead limbs. 
Other trees are falling over around them and they're replenishing carbon back to the soil. And that carbon going back into the soil is a long-term food source for microorganisms. So all your bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes. And you see it in, in a forest environment. Um, you can't see the bacteria or the protozoa no. or the nematodes, but you can see the fungi. So you can see the mushrooms popping up. You can see the mycelium growing through old logs. You know, flip a, flip a log over in the, in the garden and you'll see mycelium at the bottom of it if you've got fungi in the soil. But if you look at, if you, if you give your tree the area that it requires and, you know, put some logs on the ground, mulch that area, um, main, try and maintain a bit of moisture. You'll have, if you're, especially if you've got high compaction and dry soil to begin with, you'll have to, especially in summertime, if you do this in summer, you'll have to artificially water it. So you'll have to, because you've got to maintain a bit of moisture, um, because your living organisms require moisture as, you know, your microorganisms re- require moisture just as much as every other organism on the planet. So if you maintain some moisture, then that material will start to break down, and it's the microbes that are breaking those things down. And then once that starts to occur, your compaction levels will change. We've, we've been able to show that um, through our soil testing that even without any sort of physical intervention, microbes can decompact the soil. So, and we, we think that it's the bacteria that are doing it because the bacteria are the first things that multiply and they're the food source for protozoa and then the cycle, the whole um, cycle of life starts to happen. If you've got bacteria, you've got food for protozoa, um, you've got food for, you know, predatory nematodes, and then, you know, your fungi come in and the whole system starts to occur. But you have to replenish that system as well because you think about the tree, you know, next year those leaves are dropping down and in a forest environment another tree will fall over and that carbon's getting replenished. So you, tre- you need to keep replenishing the, the carbon back into the soil and if you don't want to bring mulch to your soil, just allow that leaf drop to occur. Well, it is one of the real problems that we have is people garden and are obsessed with being tidy. Mm. So take all the leaves away. <laughs> And, and, you know, you hear people putting down false grass yeah. because, it's, because it's easier to look after. Yeah. It's very tidy. It's tidy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's mining, it's mining the soil. Yeah, you're essentially, if you're taking that leaf drop away every year. It's shocking. If you're tidying up every year. And you're, burning it. And, and, and that's even worse. So you're mining it away from the soil and then you're burning it, turning it into a gas and, and letting it... it to gas into the atmosphere. It's yeah. nuts. I, I think the best way to do it, and, and it's how we used to look after schools, um, is you actually have a very small mulcher. And, uh, because the problem around schools, especially say if you've got oaks or something, the, the leaves are very woody, you know, they're, they're very stiff, and they just blow around for yeah. nine months, which yes. of course schools hate, or any, any sort of uh, commercial operation hates. So if you just throw them through a mulcher... And they become the size of ten cent pieces, or mow them, and then or mow them. Uh, it depends how many you got. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just put them over the soil. I think that makes a big difference. Now I don't know if there's any truth you could, you could answer this. So I've always thought that if you've got an oak tree uh, that's struggling, the best thing you can do is smash up oak leaves and put it onto yeah. the onto yeah. the on, onto the soil. Not get eucalyptus mulch or something that may have quite different makeup. But to actually use the same species, if you can do that, I think that would make a big difference. You're on the right track, and I like where, you, where you're going with that. But if you, if you really want to try and intervene and try and save the tree, it, I, I don't have so much of a problem with putting down the eucalypt mulch because it, your mulch will be breaking down. 
So you maybe do it in the first season because it, it, the, that, that mulch will retain the moisture a little bit more effectively than just the but leaf drop. But aren't you both right? I mean, if you can use the right, the leaves that have dropped from the tree, that must be best. But yes. any mulch is yes. better yeah. than no mulch. Great right. mediation there. We are both right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Virginia. Thanks, Virginia. <laughs> it makes a, and Virginia a, is sitting in the middle between <laughs> us. <laughs> it does make a massive difference. We, uh, at a school, looked after a, a huge old registered uh, fig tree, um, Morton Bay fig. And for years, well, when we first got there, it had asphalt around it. So we got rid of that, um, and then it became lawn. And then when, we, when the drought was about halfway through, I convinced them to mulch right out to the drip line. So it's a very big tree. Mm. It's uh, probably 30 metres across. Um, and that tree has never looked back. And, and you, uh, if you just dig, and that gets replaced regularly. Yep. So if you um, uh, just scratch away that, that mulch, the soil is magnificent under mm. there now, like, what, 15 years later, it is magnificent. Uh, and that tree does tolerate uh, the summers better. I mean, Morton Bays do drop a hell of a lot of leaves yeah. uh, in January, and it was always, oh, no, what's wrong with the Morton Bay? Um, no, no, it does that, especially if you have a wet spring. Yeah. You put on enormous amounts, and eucalypts do the same thing, put on enormous amounts of foliage, and then you get some hot weather, and whoop, they drop them, and sort of some people panic about that. But it, uh, it has made a massive difference to that tree. In, I've in so much noticed it in, with my trees. They, all of them were struggling. Um, and I find the same with bulbs. You know, you, if I plant bulbs straight into the grass, well, I've got these aggressive hot-weather grasses, and the bulbs just, they don't survive. If I plant them in my beds, and my beds tend to be very wide so I can do it, mm. they that survive. Could, that could have something to do with the exudate. So every single plant will produce its own formula of exudates to promote the microbes that it wants. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it's a bit of an aliopathic mm. thing that all plants do. And that's, that's, how, that's how forest really sort of functions, really, because everything's, it's quite... Uh, it's a bit crazy, really. It's like a crazy city. Everyone's sort of doing their own thing. But uh, So a tree will produce a cer certain type of exudate to promote uh, a more fungal-dominant uh, relationship with the soil, and a grass will, pr will promote a more bacterial-dominant exudate. So, um, and the reason that grasses do it, or, and all, all, gra all monocots, so you know, your palms, uh, any sort of strappy sort of single-leaf monocot plant, they they promote uh, they dump exudates into the so that they'll, they'll photosynthesize. I, I, sorry, I'll go. I, I'll keep referring back to this because it's a good thing for people to understand. So the, they'll photosynthesize, photosynthesize. They'll produce sugars, proteins, and carbohydrates, and then they'll dump that at night time. They'll dump those sugars, proteins, and carbohydrates into the soil to promote the type of biology that it wants. So grasses want more bacteria because bacteria are best at cycling nitrogen. Because bacteria are made up of mainly nitrogen, five to five to one, and that's because a grass plant wants to, you know green, strappy, you know continuous growth, where where a, a tree needs or any sort of dicotyledonous plant needs to have a, a, a stronger relationship with fungi because it needs to protect all its wood. You know, it's, it's so susceptible to fungal pathogens that it needs to promote more fungi in the soil, beneficial fungi in the soil, to help out-compete and, and antagonise against diseases and things like that. So each plant will have its own sort of set of things to try and promote to keep itself happy. That's why in a park situation, whenever I see 
grass right up to the trees and trees that are really struggling because the grass really does become the dominant organism because we know that the monocot grass is trying to make more bacteria. Particularly particularly those hot weather grasses. Yeah, yep. I think those hot weather grasses, I mean, I'm talking, you know, paspalum and cooch and yep. those grasses that survive really strongly in summer, they're much tougher than the grasses that we have in Europe. Yep. Because, um, you know, you, in, when you're in Britain, you see all these beautiful bulbs coming up through nice soft grass. Well, there's nothing soft about my paspalum and there's nothing well, soft our soils, about my cooch. Why are you the other thing, paspalum? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I just think they compete, they compete yeah, much yeah. more. Yeah, the biggest no, thing I noticed with sort of from a soil health perspective, and this is really turning into a soil health show, isn't it? <laughs> I'm banging on about it. But in Australia, our soils are ancient. This is an ancient land and you can't forget that. You know, we our soils are old and tired. Where if you go to the northern hemisphere, especially where I worked in, in Boston in, in America in the north northeast, they are really young soils on that geological perspective. They are really young soils and they They've had volcanoes. Yeah, well yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're, they're young and fertile and fresh. And then, you, you know, I, I remember when I learnt all about the soil biology and making compost teas and composts and things like that, and I came back to Australia and I just did exactly what I learnt in America. It didn't work. Well, somebody has just rung in and said that they've been um, out mowing. Somebody called Michael has been mowing um, for mulch this morning. Great. And has made, the, you, made the point about how you can have mulch that's too thick. And you actually stop the water getting through. And when we don't have a lot of water, I mean, I tend to thin my mulch a little bit uh, if I'm looking for the the rain to get through. Well, see, but I don't know about that because trees and that's going to correct me here. I'm sure <laughs> I'll give it a go. <laughs> and I want to and I want to address uh, Michael's question yes, too. Yeah. Tree, okay. Trees, uh, um, you know, when when a tree does fall over, and we've got bush on our place, so when they fall over, you do look at them and think, wow, it's a very small base plate. But you forget that a lot of the roots have actually broken off mm, when they when when it's still tipped. down there, mm. and and they can be incredibly small, yeah, and they're not woody, and they're just in that top hundred mils, and they could be growing and dying back and growing and dying back wherever it's been, you know, and where and then they're promoting that fungi as they go along. So if you don't have a lot of soil moisture and and you do have a sort of seemingly the moisture being held up in the in the mulch in the mulch. I don't know that that's such a bad thing because I think those little fine feeder roots are up in that. Yes. They're up sitting in that and they're using what's in that uh, in that soil just below that that level where it's staying nice and moist. But they're dying back and they're coming yeah. and they're going and they're, they're having that symbiotic relationship with the fungi. So. With our projects, a lot of the time we'll come in and we, we've got to start just like I think what Mick's sort of talking about there with his question. And we're, we're starting with really highly compacted soils, really low organic matter content soils and really low moisture content soils. And pr- most sometimes almost no biology, which is really unheard of because NASA's been trying to get rid of microbes to send things off to space for years. But in urban environments, when you measure the soil biology, it's really you know not happening. The, the thing is, is you've got to sort of address all of those components. So if you're scratching your mulch away and you're seeing that it's still dry, it's because that, the, that interface level hasn't started to occur yet. And that interface level where your humus starts to form is being f- formed by the biology, by the microbes. So if, you're, if you put down a whole lot of mulch onto a really heavily compacted soil with low moisture content and no biology, it could stay like that. 
if your if your mulch is sitting on the soil and not not breaking down, it's because you don't have biology in the soil, and we know we know that that's happening. So, what you need to think about is that there are microbes in that mulch, but if they're dead because that mulch is still dry then you need to sort of maintain a bit of moisture. So if you can sort of maintain moisture in that mulch for, a, you know, seasonally, throughout the seasons, even through summer, the microbes will start to break down all that carbon and nitrogen in the mulch and they'll start to increase their levels and the bacteria will start to grow, your protozoa will start to grow and you'll start to get an interface between the, the level of the soil and the mulch. Mm, that's and then, right. And that's that... That's that. Key area, yeah. isn't it? It's the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mm. wanted to do. I I mulched a whole area, very dry area, yesterday, and the mulch has been sitting in a huge bin for, you know, maybe a month. So yep. it's really moist and gorgeous. And you're getting that humusy sort of sticky material. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to put pea straw on top of the mulch to protect the mulch. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, is this mad? And I thought, no, I actually do. I want it to keeps pe- it moist. I well, you could actually do it backwards, and I reckon that's sort of something that Mick needs to think about with his situation there. If he puts down a material like a pea straw, because that, that material is a really good bacterial food, and it'll break down really quickly. quickly. Mm-hmm. And it'll actually hold moisture quite well too. If you put that down over the soil surface and then put your woody sort of eucalypt high-carbon mulch over the top of that, Quite thick too. You know, this is the whole thing is that, and you were talking about Australian standards before, the Australian standard says mulch, you know, 100 mil. That's just silly, really. From an economic point of view, it's kind of expensive to be spreading mulch. I think you should be tripling that. You know, I've, I've gone into projects and said, put, you know, people say, how much mulch should we put down? And I'm like, well, we know we're going to increase the microbes in the soil and the soil health, so put down 300 mil of, of mulch because it's going to break down. And if if you just put down what the standard says, 100 mil, it breaks down within a few months and then you're having to mulch again. Because, um, and you touched on it before and you're right, in all our projects when we improve tree health, the, one of the first things that you find when you improve soil health around the base of a tree is all those feeder roots will come up through the soil and start to access all that nutrition that the biology is unlocking. Mm. So you do one of the first things you do see is all this new root mass coming up. Now, in our thinking, we sort of think, well, that's not a good thing because you want tree roots to go deep, and that's true. But you also, to save a tree, you need to increase that root-shoot ratio as quickly as possible. You need to increase that tree's immune system as quickly as possible, and the only way you can do that is producing new root mass and the only way you can do, produce new root mass is to, is to produce, you know, give the trees some new soil to biology. grow in mm. and biology. And it, it, look, it, it, that's why we call it key biology because everything comes back to microbes and all industries are, just don't address microbes at all. Agriculture is the worst. Mm. Uh, everything in agriculture kills the biology. You know, you, you think about farmers that used to farm and used to have big field mushrooms. You know, I guarantee that any farmer that uses superphosphate would not have big field mushrooms anymore. Every, you know, farmers will, they'll compact the soil, then they'll over-fertilise, and they don't have and microbes. And then they'll rip it. Well, and then they have disease mm. because the, the soil gets sick and then the plants get sick. And, you know, the, um, what are, and we can measure this stuff too, sugar and mineral density. So we should be buying our food based on bricks. So bricks is a measurement of sugar and mineral density, and a healthier soil will produce a plant with a higher bricks, so sugar and mineral density. And they're starting to do this stuff overseas, and I'm working with some scientists overseas where we're, we're producing a, a device and a platform to measure bricks, and, and bri- bricks will end up in our... 
uh, we'll end up with spectrometers in our phones. So you'll be able to go into the supermarket and measure brinks, you know, not that very far away. But if we started to buy our produce based on bricks, so uh, which is sugar mineral density, so it's the it's the food value of that, that of that material, it, it really would take out marketing because marketing's got it and gotten out of control. We really should buy our food based on science. But what's bricks? So bricks is a measurement. I mean, what's it, what's it stand for? Oh, it doesn't stand for anything. It's just a, it's a name for it's just a term for sugar and mineral density. So some industries are using it. So in um, in the orchard industries, especially for, I think they're doing it with um, orange juice. So they're scanning oranges now to figure out which oranges should be juiced and which ones should be sold as oranges. And they have a spectrometer that, that scans the fruit as it's going through and it, can, it measures the bricks, so how the sugar mineral density. And sugar mineral density ranges, it's sort of zero to 28. And, mo- you know, plants should really, you know, produce or plants should be about at least 12 bricks. Um, but conventional agriculture has really lowered that. And when you, and see, bricks is also a measurement of how tasty it is. So you think about an organic, and, and, I, and we know this for a fact, blueberries. You know when you go to the supermarket and you get some blueberries and they're just tasteless? And sometimes you get them and you, and you just go, wow, that's incredible. What the difference is between those two is the level of bricks, the sugar and mineral density. And that sugar, anything that's got a high sugar and mineral density has a higher food value, higher nutrient value, and that plant also is able to suppress disease mm. and pests more effectively. Mm. Did, so if, did you want to take that call yes, or do you I want do. to go on to another <laughs> oh. topic? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm definitely going to take this call. Um, uh, we're going to Elfie and Elfie's in Avondale Heights. Good morning, Elfie. Hello. Yes, go ahead. Oh, you're on to me, are you? Yes, we are. Oh, okay. All right. Look, I'm, I live in Avondale Heights and I've, I've got a messy garden. Good on you. Good. Yeah, people walk past and have a bit of a look because I live in this t- next to one of those, what I call a mausoleum <laughs> with no garden, pebbles and prickles, I call it. Horrible. Horrible and scary. And, um, you know, the people are sort of similar-minded, I think. Um, I believe that any tree is better than no tree. I completely agree with you, Elfie. Right. So yes. I just let anything and everything wants to grow there. You're grow. preaching to the converted, Elfie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also think that all nature strips, well, we should be planting food on our nature strips, but also everybody should be asking for one to two trees on their nature strips. Yes. Yep. I've got only one. I wanted two. I've got one. Um, the more, the merrier. And also just giving shade to cars. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my place is shady. Like my front little, I don't call it a lawn, the little front garden the grass there, the grasses that grow, they're green all year in summer too because it's mm. got shading there. And I do, you know, provide some water, you know, when I early hours of the morning to, to moisten the soil if need be. And uh, the same in the backyard. And I do a lot of mulching. I use all the leaves. The other day I sort of scraped them all up and straight back on the garden. Mm. I'm always happy to use other people's leaves too. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I know, but it's all part of this stupid neat disease. Yes, absolutely. Oh, sorry about that. It's the neat disease. I think it is a disease. Absolutely. Um, contagion. Yeah, yeah. But also another thing that disturbed me about, you know, I don't think councils are that smart when it comes to, you know, arborism and horticulture. You know, I think they vary. Um you know, people are now having this, what, what I call, it's almost like a, um, a racism against trees that are from non, uh, from things that are non-Australian. Oh, I Elfie, there's ridiculous. a... Ridiculous. Um, councils all over the world are, are really starting to address 
um, the urban heat island effect and climate change, and they're all developing urban forest strategies. So Melbourne in Australia was one of the first councils to do it, and they've got a great strategy and a, yeah. and a great long-term outlook. And they are starting to catch up. But if you read between the lines in all those strategies, it's not really about the token tree, like you say, the one tree at the front of your house. That's that's what they're doing sort of now. If you read between the lines, it really is about the urban forest yeah. and the collective canopy. So yeah, yeah, but what concerns me is down near the Maribyrnong River, it's down near Afton Street, there was a lovely walk, you know, meandering walk across the path, the concrete path, unfortunately, um, and there were these wonderful weeping willows. Now, they'd been there for over 50 years, maybe 80 years, absolutely magnificent specimens, and they've murdered them. But... Ellie, now, this, I say Ellie, leave the bloody a, trees. Don't don't plant anymore. This is a problem. Them. This is a problem. I mean, it was like the I can't even are, walk there anymore. It's like a it's like a murder scene. You know, <laughs> I cannot go there. I know, but one of the this is a this is a problem of economics because probably it is a good idea to remove the willows, but because they. Um, are, they're worried about the economics. They go down. They've done this at um, Studley Park too, and it's absolutely mm. disastrous. Mm. So they remove every willow at once Ridiculous. instead of moving one, removing one or two, and then planting an alternative and leaving the rest. That's what you have to do. You've got to plant first and then remove. Yes, exactly. In but this, the economics of it. Oh no, oh. it costs too much to do that because we're getting in contractors, and so they mm. don't do it. They've done the same at Studley Park, and they removed every willow. And of course, the the bank of the river is starting to go into the you, river. You, you're Right, I think you, you're right on there. It, the economics is is, the, is a real big problem. When you look at all the artist impressions of the future of how where our cities are going, the expense that that Melbourne is a classic one. I've got actually just put the picture in a slideshow that I'm delivering next at the end of the next week for Swinburne Uni. But it's a picture of it, Melbourne City from above, and all the buildings are covered in rooftop gardens, and the streets are just full of canopy. From an economic point of view, that is incredibly expensive and we just don't have the funds to do what we need to do yet. But things are changing. And what I would say to, to Elfie is climate change is good for business. Eventually, you know, the more as we move forward and we get more extreme days and people, you know, the community really starts to sort of balance out, you know, between this argument whether climate change is happening or not, we will start to sort of turn the tide and head in a better direction. But we, ha it's just a process. Like yes. it really, you know, things take a long time to change. Yeah, but you know what concerns me too is councils are approving inappropriate developments and these stupid gardens that go with them. They need to have some sort of, uh, well, a lot of education to let these people know that if you put in a bloody native garden, front and back, it's self-maintaining, it looks good, and you're doing something for the environment. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily a major fan of just one thing or another, Elfie. I think no, 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 you, no. I think well, you were right when you started. Is that seems to love native gardens. Trying, I like a mix myself. Trying, yeah, mix. Well, at the end of the day, it's going to become about canopy. It's just, yep, it's, yep, it's yep. you know, really, it's going to become about green everywhere. It really doesn't matter either way. And if, it, if it's best to put a native garden in a certain area, spot, go with that. Yep, yep. Um, but Bezen sometimes you... Bears and prickle plants. Yes, absolutely. We Those don't need a world green full of cactuses. That they put in now, they're just vile. Mm. No, it doesn't support any life. That's, that's very no true, Elfie. We all quite agree with you. I mean, my whole garden, everything's organic. I spray nothing. I'm really obsessive about not spraying anything that's poison, you know. Well, I never spray anyway. And, I mean, I've got all the bugs and all the insects, I and think, Elfie. from the whole neighbourhood. They probably say, oh, let's go to Alfie's. 
<laughs> well, it's, no, that's excellent. And, and there must be something about it, because it seems our next caller has got the same name as you. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Look, it's been absolutely fascinating, and the knowledge that... Um, I didn't catch his name, sorry. Daniel? Yes. No, Matthew. No. Matthew. Matthew Daniel. Matthew, Matthew Daniel. Sorry, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew. I got the Daniel bit right. Um, look, you've been absolutely so... Um, I've, I've been educated. Excellent. Excellent. And I think that everybody should know and hear what you've got to say, and particularly those people in so-called power in councils. Well, let us go on to our next caller now, Elfie. Yes, thank Good you. on you, Elfie. Okay, bye. Cheers. And, uh, yes, we are going to, but at this time it's Ellie, not Elfie. Ellie in Armadale. Good morning, Ellie. Oh, good morning. Um, I'm on a totally different uh, subject. That's fine. Um, but it's still gardening. Um, I'm just wondering, when is the best time to move a bird's nest fern? I would do it any time. Hmm. Ah, yes, I thought that might be the yeah. case. I think yeah. they have a very small root system, don't they? You have to. They, they can be quite tenacious if it's in the ground. Yes. So um, I would be digging well around it to take as much of it, and you probably have to go quite deep, you know, sort of over a spade depth. Right. Mm. Yeah, but they'll be fine. But any time. Yeah, I would do it any time, as long as you keep the moisture up to it. Yep, and a bit of sea salt, presumably. Yeah, that's always good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for that. Okay, bye. Bye. And next up we have uh, Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look, I've got, uh, I've got an easement out the back. I'm very, very lucky, and I've planted all Indigenous out the back. There's about 20, 20 trees. And uh, around the garden, I've got a great big gum out the front. It's, uh, I planted it. It was only a little thing. Uh, it's an iron bark. And I planted it 45 years ago, and it's about four storeys high. It's beautiful. Magnificent. <laughs> and my wife... The thing that I'm, I should divorce her over it. She <laughs> wanted a little pine, and she said, "I've read it. It's only a shrub." <laughs> well, it's bloody huge. <laughs> and every time I look at it, I say to her, "I should divorce you over that." <laughs> I think you're making an important point too, Ken. People talk about native gardens, and a native garden might mean plants from broom. And actually, New Zealand is closer. <laughs> and right. if what you're doing is worrying about your area, it's indigenous that That's is important, right. not native. That's correct. And indigenous means from your area. Exactly. And I mean it's important that we grow indigenous because we're going to lose it. Yes, that's true. And we can't. And also, the indigenous is going to encourage, you know, your mycorrhizae and your insects and and your local birds, etc. Whereas to just say, oh, it has to be a native garden and then plant a whole lot of Queensland trees in your garden doesn't, to me, no. make a huge amount of sense. Well, we get parrots and we get all sorts of things mm. in, our, in our back garden. And it's just lovely. And it's mm. just lovely to sit out there in the summer and just listen to the birds. The birds love my place, love our place. Even the pine? <laughs> no, I don't think they like the pine. They don't, I don't think I've seen... Oh, I've seen Maggie sit on the top of it. I've seen And Maggie. also, I, I've got a whole lot of radiata pines around my place, and I, when I moved in, I wanted to take them down, and luckily couldn't afford it. And um, for the, the parrots, the black cockatoos, 
that is a really important food source nowadays, mm. those pines, yeah. those radiata pines. Yeah, there's mm. e- ecosystems, microclimates, all those sorts of things are really important, and everything does help each other. Mm. You know, bigger trees can produce a microclimate that can allow, you know, other trees to grow up. And if you, if you garden, if you, if you have a real long-term approach with your garden, you can tackle these things over time. Evan, you, you know... The, the landscape industry is uh, landscape architecture industry is a classic one of trying to instantly produce something, and we really don't, uh, you know, have that sort of long-term approach. and And this discussion about you know natives versus um, exotics, and, and Evan, you could probably better to talk about this, but they aesthetically they don't blend. You know, if you're going to have native, then stick with it. You know, you pa- and rubbish. Yeah, oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, I don't I think, think that's right either. Yeah. On that yeah. my, my, it depends. My hey. garden is a complete mix. People say to me, "Have you yeah. got a native garden?" I say, "No." Oh, you've got exotics? No. Yeah. I have got grevilleas sitting next to exotics, sitting mm. next to my camellias, and I think my garden looks rather nice. Yeah. I yeah. don't think there's any problem mixing them. No, I don't think there is either. And we, we um. Uh, over the years, especially if you're working in a city, you'll get people say, "Don't put any." natives in the design and you'd sneak a few in yeah and they wouldn't know yep so because there's a certain perception i think what they're more saying is i don't want a gray green garden yeah 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 that's that's really what they're saying yeah they want a green garden and the number of times people tell you that this this is a native and it's south african Yes, yes, yes. Dietes is a classic, isn't look. it? It's always. Yeah, Protea. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Coming back to the um, baseline, we didn't get to answer yeah, that. Can, oh, I, sorry. can I just finish with Ken you... first? Ken, are you still there? Oh, yeah. Um, Ken, look, because I've been away, I haven't had a chance to give you feedback. I was re- I'm really pleased that you phoned in this morning um, about our parks and reserves up in Nillambic Shire. Yes. So I just wanted to fill you in on it. Um, while I was away, the council did uh, vote. They had to vote on every individual um, reserve. Um, we've actually saved 14 out of the 17 that were to be sold. Fantastic. Which um, is really a, a fantastic effort. Um, not only have we saved that uh, those 14 from being solved, um, council have actually committed to going through the process to now have them rezoned as public park and recreation zone. So that means this won't ever arise again. Um, they've been saved for perpetuity. And, um, and also they've, uh, the group has pledged that um, now what they're going to do is um, give each reserve an identity, give it a name, a sign. Um, they're asking surrounding residents what, if anything, they would like on their reserve, whether they want it kept, kept totally as a natural reserve, whether they want a park bench, a local art sculpture, drinking fountain, play equipment, etc. And then um, to go on, including the, uh, the local community, they're going to work with council and local groups like Men's Shed to create um, a package and apply for grants and funding. Uh, they're appointing a reserve leader or captain for each reserve to coordinate and this is going to be coordinated with our our local member of parliament who's totally on side and um, we've also already got um, a whole group of high school students who are willing to to um, get involved and help with maintenance or whatever is required so it's been um, a really incredible um, community process 
it's ongoing, which is fantastic, and we've proved to to our council that um, that uh, public open spaces and reserves are absolutely crucial, oh, and they can't just um, you know try and uh, stampede over us. Congratulations. It's very similar happened to us. Yep. But they want to just put all the nox, filthy noxious trade uh, uh, 45 years ago. The government, it was a Liberal government, they wanted to put all the noxious trade in Victoria from the border of Sunshine right down just past Hopper's Crossing. Mm. And that was a lot. Yes. And we started up a group called the Sunshine Action Group, which I was proudly the, the president of for 40 years I've, res- I've resigned now and young people have taken it, which, right. which, which I should have done. And uh, uh, we've won blues over blues over blues. And that's the only way to do it. Congratulations. And uh, it just goes to show everybody, if you stick together and you stand up, you win. And the old concrete gang said, dare to struggle, dare to win, you don't fight, you lose. Absolutely, you've got it. Anyway, thanks very much. Your program's fantastic. And welcome back, and uh, keep on gardening, everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Good on you, Ken. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so just just coming back to that yes. that baseline data because we didn't we didn't get we to didn't finish quite that. Get to it, so how how is that sort of determined? Uh, is are you using relying on research from Europe and, and America, or no. is there baseline data? Here that you can say, well, okay, if we get to this level, this tree, this species is going to yep. be happy. Yep. So a couple of things there. So our baseline data with our soil biology and our soil chemistry, um, we've worked a lot of that out over the last decade. So we know with the biology side of things, we, we know it for um, a, a fairly high number of genus and species, but we do know it for the type of plant. We know what, a, what it needs to be for a monocot and a dicot. Um, Chemistry-wise, chemistry is a bit of a different ball game, and you're better off letting the plant sort of figure that out. But we do know with chemistry, we do know where it shouldn't be. So the the levels of, of where you know we know when it's way out of balance, and 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 so that those baselines are sorted. The it's a really good question that you bring up, and that is the future of where we're going. So the last few years, I think about three years now, I've been working with Michigan State University on a project called Photosync. And technology is really now allowing um, the green industry to really make huge leaps and bounds in our understanding. And it's all based on open source science um, and using different types of sensors to measure our environment. So the Photosync project is... um, is that what they've done is they've taken a really expensive spectrometer, spectrometer to measure photosynthesis and they've been able to make the device really cheap. So they've taken a $60,000 spectrometer that you used to, have, used to cost to, to buy, they've made it smaller and they've ma- they're making them for about $1,000 and they link to your phone and so this is the, why things are really starting to change because our phones now are just incredible little computers and you can go up and you can measure you know, photosynthesis, uh, it talks to your phone, it sends the information up to the cloud, and because the whole thing's open source, it's very much like Facebook. You have your own profile, you can interact with people from all over the planet, um, and it's a, it's a fascinating um, platform that's really going to make change. Now, we don't have those baseline measures for what the photosynthesis for a different plant should be, but if we work as an international community, um, and that's the whole point of this thing, is to make spectrometers so cheap that we can get them in hands of professionals or, or 
citizens all over the world and develop a baseline really quickly. Now, the other fascinating thing about these platforms and we've kind of, the Photosync platform's up and going now and, and it's all happening, but the Photosync platform's very much, it's very technical and it's really based, it's really there for research scientists or professionals that are, um, you know, in a different stage of their career like myself. We, we've broken away from um, that and we're building another platform now that's really user-friendly for almost anybody and you don't have to be a scientist to be able to analyse the data. So what, what we're doing is we're taking the same thing and all this stuff is open source. So we can take the Photosync um, device that I bought and we can, I can just use it on a different platform. So it's like, it's like having a, a device that could talk to, fo- uh, to Facebook or, or LinkedIn. It's, it's open source. It doesn't matter. You don't have to buy a, a, a particular device for a particular platform. Um, and our new platform that we're developing that's going to be specifically for trees and urban environments is designed so that we, we can go up and we can collect information. It'll go into the, to the uh, online platform. And after a while, when we've got a certain amount of data, we're going to start running that data through artificial intelligence and it'll generate you a figure of what that should be. And as we take more measurements and we learn more, we'll eventually end up with a species-specific um, baseline measure of what you know a particular plant should be. So we're so, going to be able so to learn it, really quickly. What's it measuring? It's measuring the rate of photosynthesis. Synthesis. So which, which then you can say, well, if it's only I don't know, if it's on, out of ten, if it's only doing a two, yeah. then clearly we've got a problem. Yeah. If it's doing an eight, it's going tracking okay. Yeah. yeah. Photosynthesis um, is super complex. I, I don't yeah, have time to go into it. Would all also of it. depend on the day, time of day. And That's the right. Of things exactly. To, exactly. But if, but eventually, with enough data of different times, you know, it's one of these things where um, it will take off. You know, you look at all these platforms that are out there and they, you know, they they become incredible. This is a platform for green people, for green industry, that it's a really good thing that where technology is really going to open up doors and help us learn really quickly. But it doesn't just measure photosynthesis. These platforms now are really um, flexible. So I, I, my, my project that I designed for Photosync um, ha- takes a lot of metadata as well, which means I, can me- I go out and I measure the soil moisture and the soil compaction, and I can add um, uh, observations of what's happening. You know, is, is the tree mulched? Is, the tree, is there grass up to the tree? Is it bare soil? Did I see any fungi? I can take a picture, and all this stuff is uh, becomes this baseline for future generations to use as well. Because that's another problem that I find with what I do is that every project I work on, I have to collect information that's never been collected before. Mm. If I was able to go back to a suppository, no, sorry, wrong word. (laughs) Uh, If I was able to go back to somewhere where someone had taken some information years ago about this particular space or this particular tree and learn from someone else, it would really help in mm. the now. So that's right. information is really key and it's going to change a lot of industries. Mm. So, come, and, and just if I can just yeah. do one other yeah. clarification. Um, so, mulch type. Now, I know you say it doesn't matter how deep it is. However, you do get issues, and I, I do know it, it was it, we, we were looking after a school for a while where the turf guys basically looked after the garden. And so it was always that they had to put on more mulch to make it look good. Put on mulch, put on mulch. Yeah. And they were using a pine bark mulch. So when we came to plant that particular bed, the mulch was about 400 mil thick and yeah. it was pine bark. We could not get a thing to grow in there, yeah. obviously, because there was so much nitrogen drawdown. It, it, there was oh, just, there was just and no biology so it's the in there. It's yeah, the, and the tannins. tannins that, that's yeah. right. And also, so I mean, it's not just about... It's so just, What I'm saying is being careful. 
Well, so the best uh, mulch is the mulch that has leaves in it. Like arb mulch well, can be fantastic. So the way, so you, you, got, you think about the the carbon to nitrogen ratio of all everything on Earth has a CDN ratio. We have one. As we get, if we're a bit overweight, our CDN ratio is a bit out of control, and as we get thinner, you know, it changes. So. Different materials will have a different carbon to nitrogen ratio. So a grass, so your grass clippings will have really high in nitrogen and reasonably low in carbon. That's why that stuff breaks down really quickly. Where, uh, say, like you were talking about before with the um, eucalypt mulch, will have a lot more carbon than nitrogen in it. So if you add a few more leaves to it, especially green leaves, you'll balance out that CDN ratio and you'll make that material start to compost more effectively. Now, your pine bark is an issue because... Bark has the tannins and the chemicals in it to suppress microbes because the trees, the bark is the protective skin uh, for the tree to keep the bugs away from attacking it. So if you use any type of bark material on your soil, you're really preventing the bugs from getting to the soil and that, and also all those chemicals in that bark make it a really, they're there because it's difficult for the microbes to break it down. Plus, particularly with pine, I mean, the New Zealanders have developed a weedicide out of pine. Yes, yeah. that's right, they have. But that, I think it, it's better than no mulch. What I'm saying is it's the thickness. So yeah. pine bark, I think, is fine up to, say, 150 mil. As long like, as it's breaking away. If it's not yeah. breaking away, you don't have microbes in your soil. No, that's, and that's right. The, that's, but the, I think the, that's the main problem. Yeah, I think it does eventually. It, it, it takes time. But the best mulch is unfortunately the stuff that's not really commercially available, not the stuff that you can actually um, put into a specification. Yeah. Um, and that is arb mulch. Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. The, the mulch because it has a mixture of carbon and nitrogen. Beautiful mix, yeah. and I use it all the time. I'm forever yeah. giving away slabs of beer to arb guys driving yeah. past yes, my yes, place yes. Yeah. Uh, to drop a load, and I, I spread it through just on paths. Do you and ask them like what trees that. they've been working on? That's the key. I do. I always yep. do, and I don't tend to buy it. Oh get it um, around autumn because there's obviously going to be a hell of a lot of seeds if they're taking out things like petosporums or yeah. cotoneasters or, or something or the like other that. Thing, the or the other thing too is if they've been doing a lot of vegetative pruning, so the guys that are pruning away from power lines, mm. their, their mulch has a lot more nitrogen in it because it's got a lot more leaf material than the woody material mm. and that stuff will break... It'll, it'll be good for the beginning of, of what you're trying to do. So that stuff will break down really quickly. Mm. If you want a long... So once you've built up your soil health a little bit and you want to... Because mulching is a really labour-intensive exercise and you've got to be careful, especially if you've got lots of plants around your trees and things like that. If you, if you want to do it effectively on that economic point of view, you want mulch from guys that have been cutting trees down where there's going to be a lot more yes. wood in it than, than leaf. So you carbon it more carbon than nitrogen. And, and, then the, and then the carbon to nitrogen thing, if you're thinking about carbon, if they're cutting down, say, dead coniferous trees, that has the highest amount of carbon than, say, a pine tree. A pine tree doesn't have as much carbon. It's because they're really fast-growing. Um, they don't have as much carbon in them. But it, so if you ask the guys like, you know, oh, we, we just cut down a, you know, a conifer tree down the street that was dead, that, that mulch will be re- great. And in a few years' time, you'll have mushroom, you know, beneficial mm. fungi popping mm. up everywhere. Mind you, I'll take whatever they've got in yeah, the yeah, cut, yeah, generally yeah, yeah. speaking. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we do need to get to a few Sorry. callers. Um, first up, we'll go to Pippa in Sydenham. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning. Thanks uh, for morning, waiting. Uh, Excellent exercise of knowledge you have displayed this morning. Oh, thank uh, you. We're riveted. Now, uh, I have a, <coughs> a quarter line, 
I think it's called Red Star. It has a red uh, line through it, mm-hmm. and it's developed two side pumps. Yes. And I'd love to move that to put in um, a tall conifer and move that further across. When would be the best time to do that? Oh, where are you? In Sydenham. Sydenham. Where's Sydenham? Sorry for my ignorance. Uh, it's west. It, northwest. West. Yeah, but it's in in Melbourne. Clay. Right. Yeah. Clay so Clay. so it's it's warmish. I, mm. I I would I would do it. I would dig it up and move it. That would That's be fine. Excellent. Yeah. No, That's doesn't she want to pup it? Don't you want to cut some pups off it? To, well, yes, I do. To I'm strike them. To move the two pups. Oh, see, I don't know. Are they just off the side of the trunk, or are they? I don't know if you can take pups off the side of those cordy lines. Ah. I think you can. I think you can. Um, but I, I would say it'd need to be a bit warmer, wouldn't it? Because um, in Queensland, I worked up in Queensland years ago, and any of those sort of cord lines really easy to strike. Mm. Um, but then it's they don't really have the winters like we have down here. Mm. I- I'll wait. Maybe wait till it yeah. starts that the season starts to change and then cut them off and but I wouldn't put them straight into the ground. You'd probably put them into some potty mix first and let them let them start to develop some new some new roots and then put pop them into the ground. I will. Thank you for your help. Put, put them in the shade. Lovely. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we have uh, Jill from East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Jill, are you there? Hello. Let's go to Liz. Yes, yes. I'll put Jill on hold. Just uh, okay. I think she'll she's come gone. back. Yeah. Mm. Okay. We have uh, Liz next in Collingwood. Good morning, Liz. Oh, good morning. Um, look, just quickly, uh, Matthew, you mentioned uh, light and the urban forest and light in the city, and then the the, the wonderful conversation went in a hundred directions. <laughs> 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 what if you would come back to that? Uh, yeah. What, what was your, what did you want to know? Well, well, you brought it up. You brought up, um, something to do with the light in urban environments. Oh, yeah. I rem- so that was more artificial light. Yeah, so, that's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Light. I think with the, you know, the light pollution is a very interesting. Yeah, thing. that's probably the better way to, to, yeah, it really is light pollution, especially from a, from a tree perspective. So, um, the thing is with lights, and now that we're using more LEDs, which is good because they use less power, and I'm all for that, um, but that artificial light around trees does affect, you know, their, their function. So it'll make them, um, it'll make them try and photosynthesize when they should be really trying to sleep. Um, and you see it a lot, you, you know, um, anecdotally, you've only got to go for a drive and have a look at deciduous trees and, You'll see quite often a deciduous tree that's growing right next to a light pole and, and it, it'll, it'll hold on to those leaves on the side of the tree where the light is um, because the tree's yes. confused. It's not quite sure what to do. Yes. Uh, are, are the LED lights any worse than other lights? Oh, I think the LED lights would be... Well, they would, they would, they would produce a... a and, I, and this is outside my quals for that science, but I'm pretty sure that they would be producing a brightness of light, like lumens, that would probably um, make the tree try and photosynthesise. So, and, yeah. and other lights wouldn't do that as much? I, I mean, I think trees, they have are a they lo- worse? Uh, yeah, I think they have a lower lumen um, level. Right. 
Um, but that I don't. That's not really it my. Would, it would probably depend on the spectrum of the light rather than the brightness. Yeah, and the I colour. Suspect. Yeah, because yeah. they in glass houses they manipulate plants by putting, you know, different levels of, of, of parts of the spectrum yeah. into the light. Yeah, so blue, red, and yellow. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. would be a similar thing. Yeah, but yeah. look, it's a hard one because we need light in our, you know, lighting in our cities, and we do need canopy in our cities, but. I'm not sure what we do about that as things go because in the future it, we, we really need more canopy and as we get more canopy we're going to get more you know, darker streets of a night and then we're going to start adding more lights which are going to affect the, the function and health of the tree and then we want to have really good health and function of so trees. So we're going in circles. Yeah, sort yeah. of, but yeah, well, we're, we're going to learn. We're learning. Yeah, mm. one of the things yeah. that is happening in um, all sort of, if you like, six-tar developments, whatever that really means, but um, for car parks and those sorts of things, all the lighting that you have to specify, all uh, it's all reflected light. So nothing actually shines up into the air. So you'll see it yeah, now. Right. You'll see lights, uh, light poles kind of with hoods over them. Yes. The lights mm-hmm. actually shine on those hoods and you get the reflected light. So they are addressing the light pollution in that yes. way. I don't know how that's changing the, for plants, but that, Sounds that like is a good well, it does, idea. It does change them. I and you've only got to look at a forest situation where there's so many things going on at different light levels um, and, you know, it's, sort of, it's really quite stratified. But plants will... Um, they'll develop phototropism. So they'll grow. That's how a plant knows to grow into a certain direction. Trees do it all the time. You, you'll have a tree that wants to grow. And, you know, if you want it to grow straight up and down, but you've got a tree, you know, a big tree beside it, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll develop phototropism towards the light and bend off in a different direction. So my point is, is that, you know, nature is complex and you've got to sort of... You're never going to get it absolutely perfect, but you've got to really think about everything and, and really think, especially with trees, you've got to think long term. You know, trees are on completely different life cycles than we are. You know, you don't, they're not on annual, you know, year one, year two. They really are on, you know, decades. Um, yeah. and, and for all this urban forestry stuff, um, I hear, I've got a colleagues in councils that talk about useful life expectancies of 20 or 30 years, which is ridiculous because yeah. it takes 20 or 30 years for a tree to develop enough canopy density and mass mm. to have a functional value. And that's, that's what, what urban forestry is trying to do, functional. Yeah, so Matthew, that's because they look at them as, as um, replaceable things and they look at a uh, yeah. hundred-year-old elm and say, oh, well, we just plant We'll, we'll plant another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And ridiculous. Yeah. So annoying. Really, and then it takes another hundred really years to... What's really worrying me is their um, move to put much more lighting in parks. And I have beautiful parks near me and they are just blessedly dark at night and there's one part where they've stuck in a whole lot of lighting and the trees are just beginning to die off. It's quite bizarre. But, um, you know, just this mania for banging lighting in through gardens that need that dark, that place yes. dark at night. Mm. But thank you for a wonderful program. Okay, that's fine. Thank Good you. Good on you, Liz. Bye. Uh, we are running out of time. We're going to have to try and get to these last couple of callers. So uh, next up we have Ruth in Bentley East. Good morning, Ruth. <coughs> Ruth, are you there? Hello. Hello, yes, yes, go ahead. We haven't got much time. No, good morning, everyone. It's been a terrific session. I already do a lot of the things that you've been talking about. Excellent. 
I want to know, I've got an abundance among all my leaves, but specifically bamboo leaves and calistamine leaves. And I'm just wondering, I sort of missed the bit where you're saying about perhaps mixing um, some greenery, was it, with these? Yeah, some, some green, some nitrogen. So you've got... You know, your bamboo and your calistamine are going to be reasonably high in carbon. There's going to be a bit of yeah. tannin in that as well. So yeah. to get the nitrogen in there, and this is a concept for composting, um, to yeah. boost up your nitrogen levels, use grass clippings. So mix that stuff up. That's probably the most effective way. You could treat and try and put some nitrogenous fertilizer. So get your N, your nitrogen, from yeah. some nitrogen fertilizer and something a bit more sustainable like... Um, dynamic lifter, you can cheat that way sometimes with composting, but I, I would just go grass clippings. Mix your grass well, clippings through half it. My problem, I don't have much lawn. I've got. Well, flag down, flag down your local Jim's mowing fella and ask him if he can <laughs> drop a couple of bags out in front of your place. <laughs> with his weeds, thank you. Yeah, that's that's uh, the flip side. But if you compost at the right temperature, if you're getting it up to 60 degrees, you you'll you'll cook that weed seed uh, out of it. Well, yeah. I use an aero bin. Yeah, doesn't it does, get, doesn't always doesn't happen. Do, yeah. I think I think that's very yeah. difficult to get the temperature up. I've tried that over yeah. the years, and you, you've got to be so vigilant yeah. with your mix. You need yeah. a it's very hard to do, you and you need to turn it on a yeah. very Bruce, regular some basis. Chook, some chook poo mixed with your bamboo yeah. and calistamine would help. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Just need yeah. that nitrogen. Dynamic lifter is great. Blood and bone is great as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks. Righto. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, and very quickly we will go to uh, Ron, who's out in Doncaster. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Um, uh, thank you for your, your uh, show. It's been very enlightening this morning. I have a query regarding um, uh, tree root um, systems. In particular, I'm considering planting a, um, a ficus hilli flash um, in, in my front garden in an area which is actually a small garden bordered um, near my front door by the house on one side uh, which is to the west of it uh, and uh, a paved driveway uh, on the other um, circumference or like a half circle area but it's only about three and a half four meters long by about um, meter and a half wide and uh, at the maximum radius what I'm concerned about is that I hear that the all ficus trees have a fairly aggressive root system so I've been advised by the um, nursery where I've considering buying this unit that I'll need to install a root barrier system. I'm wondering, in, in the form of um, uh, sold by the plastic form for film, uh, I'm wondering, is this going to be sufficient enough or am I only looking for trouble? You, uh, uh, g'day, Ron. It's Matthew here. Hi, Matthew. Um, your, those root barrier systems are good, but you do need to install them properly, so you can't just sort of whack them in. Uh, 600 um, mil, they said, deep. Yeah, yep. But you've also got to, especially with the ficus, it's, it's, you've, got to let it, you've got to let it sit up out of the ground a little bit. But can I ask, do you really need them? What's that? Probably not if you've got I the path I, and the house and it's already contained. I mean, I think people uh, go crazy. Oh, I can't plant that. It'll get into my drainage system. Well, it won't unless your drainage system's extremely old. Oh, yeah, or broken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Leaking. Yeah. If it's right. leaking, it will. But, you know, if you've got plastic pipes, it's not going to get into them. Yeah, the other thing about root barriers, so 600 deep is very deep. So you're essentially saying, I'm going to contain the roots to this zone. Yep. 
Um, so sometimes all you need to do is put something down, say 300, which is enough that the roots will actually so right adjacent to the concrete. So the roots will actually go under them, and they won't go under the root barrier, and it'll be, they'll be at a bit of a depth under your concrete. I should mention this: that the um, house on the west of this, which is the background side of the, the planting bed, is the only concrete. It's the footing of the uh, brick veneer home, concrete footings. But the other side, the paved area, it's a paving system, um, a full driveway leading right up to this bed, um, and, and surrounds it. That is actually built on only crushed rock and sand, the yep. idea being that um, you can then take the rocks out if you ever need it, to, the pavers out if you needed to do mm. any amendments, such as we're running out. Here, we're, the roots might get into it. We're running out of time, Ron, but mm. yeah, absolutely, roots love growing in the sand directly under That's um, what I'm concerned bricks. And that really but, covers and, the whole of the circumference. And ficus hilli, well, any of those, uh, yeah, those ficuses mm. have uh, very intensive root systems that can be quite shallow. Um, and they will they will sit straight underneath and, and so lift say, bricks build over up, times. Build it up above the ground a bit. Yeah, maybe you're better off without Ficus Hilli as well. I mean, well, Flash is a smaller grower, but um, still. Yeah. Can I tell you this? The reason I've chosen that is I'm, it's almost total shade, and that's one of the few plants yep. I've found that will probably uh, yeah. grow in that area. It's, I get a midday sun for about an hour, that's about all, Ring, and even that's filled. Ring back next week, because I, I there are shrubs that will do, like large shrubs, that will do exactly the same thing, but won't get as and big as Ficus Hilli. And you won't have the problems with uh, it. Ring back next week, and there'll be plenty of suggestions okay. for you. Okay, uh, thank you. And you'll be on next week, will you? Or no, you but Stephen, I think, is on, Stephen's so he'll, on. Have, he'll have plenty to... He'll have loads of suggestions yeah. for you. Uh, right. Do right. I need to tell me, or will someone pass it on? Uh, uh, no, just ring in. Ring, ring in, in. Okay, yeah. thank you. We've got okay. a minute left. Appreciate Bye. your help. Bye. <laughs> um, Gloria, I'm sorry we have run out of time. I'm not able to take your call this morning. If you can ring back uh, next week as well. Um, Matthew, it's been a fantastic morning. You know, it's, it's been great to have the discussion. I'll have to have you back sometime. You can, you can see from the reaction of our listeners that... Uh, they're really wanting this information and it's not readily available out there. So, um, yeah, thank, so thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks to everybody else. It's been, I've really enjoyed myself. It's been it's fun. Wonderful. It's been That's fun. great. Yeah. Okay. I must say a big thank you to Liz and Doug who've been handling all the phone calls this morning. Um, but, of course, uh, it's time that we went. We will be back 7.30 next week. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.